0: What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Jennifer Campbell is co-founder of Tagomi. In this conversation, we discuss growing up in Hong Kong and Vancouver, why trade execution in crypto has been so bad to date, what impact automation could have on society, and why Jennifer thinks Andrew Yang and UBI are interesting. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do as well. All right, guys, I'm here with Jennifer. Uh, we got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Um, you didn't grow up in the US. Let's no, talk about I didn't. it. I <laughs> <laughs> All right, you were born in Canada or in Hong Kong? Canada. All right, born in Canada, but then split time back and forth between Canada and Hong Kong.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for in Hong Kong.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk about Hong Kong first. Um, what are like the biggest takeaways from growing up, just spending time there in, an Eastern world where I think most Americans are like, I've heard of Hong Kong. I think I know where it is on a map, but I don't know anything about it.
1: Um, let's see. Um, you know, it's like, I think it's like growing up in any big city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you sort of um, get exposed to people much more quickly. Um, and, you know, you see a lot more things really quickly. Um, and, um you sort of think about the world a little bit differently so i actually grew up with three uncles um all of whom were entrepreneurs um and uh the three of them raised me together actually and so i know it sounds like a tv show but it's
0: uh, (laughs) a tv show just three uncles
1: (laughs) three uncles raised like this little girl um and like had no rules for anything um wait really yeah man i mean imagine like three they were all entrepreneurs right so you imagine the personality type um Very
0: detail oriented, obviously.
1: (laughs) They were all sort of bachelors. Mm -hmm. I had their own bachelor pad, Mm -hmm. Um, and I'd like go hang out, um, rotated between the three. Um, But you know, I, I think by contrast, you know, a lot of my friends in school had this really regimented. Um, schedule um, have you ever read The Little Prince
0: no what is that
1: it has just a story about just a little girl in it you know had this her mother has sort of planned out her life from like age yep. 0 to 18 and so those, that's, that was all my friends um, basically um, <laughs> and so I really felt like you know I had a, a lot of agency at an, mm-hmm. a young age that I could do you know whatever I wanted um, in a way that I felt like you know a lot of my friends you know didn't didn't, did, have. didn't really have and they were all sort of on a set path um, mm-hmm. from pretty early on um, and so I think you know a big reason why I felt so comfortable making this jump um, you know was because of the, sort of that background um, and so. I
0: don't know, that's one thing. Yeah, and in that environment, um, I think there's a lot of people in the tech world who, uh, these like Montessori schools and all this stuff where like, hey, we're gonna put our kids into these environments. There's like kind of rules, like you can't fight each other, but <laughs> for the most part, it's, you know, you're allowed to ask questions. You address adults by their first name. Right. Like it, it's very uh, fluid, I think, right. and much less like hierarchical. And the thought process is like, that actually produces entrepreneurs, creative thinkers, et cetera. Yeah, that was A very lot of environment I
1: grew up in. Okay. Um, well, I guess I experienced both because at school, you know, it was quite regimented, but then at home it was, you know, whatever I, you know, whatever I wanted really.
0: Got so. it. And uh, you were going to school in Hong Kong? I went to school in Can- Hong Kong okay. until
1: I was about 12. Okay. Um, and then Vancouver for high school.
0: Got it. And was there anything when you came back to North America that was like a really big like difference in terms of going from high school in Hong Kong to Canada high school?
1: Well, well the pace was a lot slower, you know. And, really? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... I also just couldn't wait to get out. Actually, you know, I I loved the city so much because even when I, I was five or six, you know, I was you know I went on the trains everywhere. I could go anywhere I wanted. Whereas mm-hmm. when I moved to Camp Vancouver, you know, unless you have a car, you know, you're you're kind of stuck at home. Yep. Um, and so I explored the neighborhood a lot, but there you were kind of just stuck. Um, and so I I really loved growing up in a city just because I felt like I could do anything I wanted. Yeah. Um, and it was quite common, you know, to you know have you know, six, seven year olds, you know, be by themselves, you know, take the train, you know, Uh, so that was quite common.
0: Look, even here in Manhattan, I see, you know, young kids on the subway and I'm like, there's zero chance I was growing up. Let, my parents let me do that because it's just if you grow up in the environment, it's much more natural than, you know, I probably would when my parents brought me to New York City as a kid, it's like everyone's holding hands, right? <laughs> like like don't lose our kid.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, so it's pretty crazy that uh, especially in, you know, Hong Kong or, or China, you know, all, all these different um, countries uh, and cities that, again, I think that it's everyone does it and so it's like a little bit more fun i have
1: such great memories of sort of going to school by myself because it felt like an adventure every day you Mm -hmm. know um i there was a guy um a german guy um on the bus that i I took every morning from i lived on the small um peninsula Mm -hmm. um called red hill peninsula it's near stanley park um and in Hong Kong, um, and then we would take the bus out to Central, which is kind of like the central. Um, it's called Central, but it's also the central uh, part of Hong Kong where all the uh, companies are and you know big businesses are. A lot of the banks are there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just told me like crazy, you know, scary stories that you know six seven year olds are not supposed to hear. You know about um, like the World War Two, about yep. politics, about um, you know about. Um, you know his family you know that you know it was all, just, kinds a, all kinds of stuff that was like you know really really interesting and fascinating to me um
0: and and, and so i'm guessing that uh, a lot of young kids that grow up in that environment they usually mature much faster right yeah. in terms of they've got a more worldly view right especially if you lived in multiple places uh speak multiple languages right i think there's a lot of science that shows like your brain develops different ways uh and then when you get into um like let's call it post-schooling, right? So business world, whatever you're gonna do, Mm -hmm. I think that your view is just very different, right? Like you almost have like much more experience in dealing with, you know, hey, I have to have money to go on the train or on the bus, right? Mm -hmm. Like that little thing.
1: That's interesting. There's a
0: lot of kids who never had to think about having enough money for how much it costs, right?
1: That's funny, yeah. But
0: you've done that for, you know, two decades, let's say after, by the time you graduate college. Right. right, And you've just been thinking about it much longer. So it just fascinates me, I think, going back and forth between different countries. And then also the kind of independence that's thrust on you. Uh, and just humans kind of like rise to the challenge a little bit. and mm-hmm. You just become normal, right? Because yeah. like I'm sure in high school, did you feel like you were just like so much more independent than all of your friends? Or it wasn't that obvious? Um,
1: maybe a little bit to start. Um, but I think my group of friends specifically were all quite independent. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe... You know, more broadly, out of the class, um, perhaps
0: we yep. were a little bit more independent. All right, so graduated high school, end up going to Harvard, mm-hmm. and then you end up at USV, uh, Union Square Ventures. Right. Uh, why go there? What What was that experience like?
1: I mean, I, that was just, just sort of the biggest blessing in the world. Um, I I loved being there. Um, you know, just the people first of all. Mm-hmm. Uh, the partners are just the most kind, genuine people. You know, you would. Ever meet? Um, there's there's lots of people with very sharp elbows in the venture mm-hmm. business, um, and it's hard to find uh, people like them. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think it's a very special group of people, first of all, um, and then second. You know, I had applied to a couple places outside of USC um, when I graduated from college, but. I just found that it was all, you know, it was sort of cold calling businesses, mm-hmm. kind of scouring the world um, for for a deal, and that really wasn't really what I was looking for. And USV actually, you know, they were quite the opposite. You know, they thought that was, um, you know, don't don't waste your time on that. You know, um, you know, they spent a lot of time. It was almost, you know, Fred Wilson calls it an MBA. You know, um, sort of learn whatever you want, uh, learn about the venture business, learn about mm-hmm. different industries. Um, you know, and any entrepreneur you want to connect to, you know, they'll connect you. And it was a great place to grow up really and Mm -hmm. um and so you know it was it was a great blessing to be there
0: and while other firms are doing let's call outbound deal flow sourcing uh usb is more focused on what comes inbound and through their network or they just had other people doing the outbound sourcing
1: um well they no so um they they say they're like thesis driven Mm -hmm. so really what that means is like they have some view about how the world's going to change right Mm -hmm. um and then They decide, okay, well, if the world's going to move towards this direction like what are the companies gonna look like Um, what's gonna do really well that's kind of unexpected Mm -hmm. uh, given current business models and then they kind of go find that company right so if you think social networks gonna go be gonna be a thing um, you know and you have a view on that well you know you go out and go find all the social network companies versus having companies inbound and then evaluating. okay I think this is a good company I don't think this is a good company that's what it means to be thesis driven right Mm -hmm. you sort of think about how the world's gonna change um, and then go find that company that you might think sh- or should you think should exist um, mm-hmm. that isn't here yet.
0: Got it. And so uh, while you're at USV, uh, they're obviously big proponents of crypto. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, j- just a little bit. Um, and uh, they've made a number of investments in the space. They've talked a ton about, you know, both what they're seeing happen, but also where they think the world is kind of going and, and how some of this will uh, will go. Were you spending most of your time on crypto or were you kind of all over the place? What was that? I look- spent
1: most of my time on, on crypto. Um, and that was
0: of my personal interest,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. but it was also a lot of what the firm was looking at at the time. Got um, it. But it was, um, it was sort of the best place to be if you were interested in crypto, um, mm-hmm. just because you had so much agency. Um, you know, the, the brand of the firm, uh, the entrepreneurs you could get connected with, mm-hmm. um, and also the people they had already invested in. You know, mm-hmm. um, had you know there was so much to learn from there. And so,
0: and what attracted you personally to it?
1: Well, I think first of all, um, I just thought it was a revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's the biggest understatement in the world that we've had on this podcast.
1: Uh, and you know, I just thought it was—I thought it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think separate from that, like I—I I just really thought, um, you know, I was you know trading a bunch on all the exchanges, and you know, a part of it was also, you know, I thought there was. Part of it was also just because there was so much, you know, um, arbitrage between all the exchanges and the statistical arbitrage between oh. all the exchanges. You know, that's why I was like trading all day on all these exchanges, and you know, that's part of the reason I started to get me is just because I thought, you know, trade execution could be done so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um,
0: you were actually trading while at USV, you're doing all kinds of statistical arbitrage, etc.
1: A little bit, yeah. Um, and I. But also, you know, I had spent so much spent so much time talking to people about, you know, the space and Bitcoin that when people got interested, I was sort of the go to person to ask, like, "Hey, how do you put, you know, ten million dollars in Bitcoin?" And I said, um, "Well, you can't uh, not immediately, right? But mm-hmm. you could spread it out over a course of a month. You could, mm-hmm. you know." Um, but really there weren't great solutions, right? I sent a bunch to the exchanges, I sent some to the OTC desks, um, but a lot of these, at least more sophisticated investors, were expecting a lot more. Of course. Um, And, um, you know, I had spent a bunch of time with Greg Tussar, so my uh, partner that I started this company with, um, he was previously the head of alternative Trading at Goldman, um, and, but really was sort of an entrepreneur at heart, so he, um, early on in his career, he started a company, also a trading firm, um, and that got, he sold that company and then it got bought by Goldman which is how he ended up there Um, so you know Greg is really an entrepreneur at heart as well Um, but you know I said to Greg like these are sort of textbook solutions Um, you could do a lot better in this space Um, and I was kind of um, seeking his expertise because I was kind of looking for a company in this space and I I looked at a a whole bunch of them but really never found um, you know a great solution I thought Um, and then ultimately we thought you know actually you know why don't we start this company together?
0: Got it, and so let's talk about trade execution, right? I think it's a term that people hear all the time. Uh, the majority of people, I think, actually don't understand what that means, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, a, hey, I've heard it, I'm familiar with it, I don't want to admit to anybody I don't know what that is. Right. Um, so maybe let's talk just what is it, and then what are the challenges around trade execution in crypto today?
1: Right, so I would just think about, like, how good is the price you get, mm-hmm. right? That's one way to think about the most simplest form of trade execution, right?
0: Is I'm gonna go buy a Bitcoin on an exchange. I'm just gonna buy one Bitcoin and the price today says, you know, $5,112. Is that actually what it's worth or is there overpriced or underpriced of what the actual value is? Exactly. Yep.
1: Um, so that's that at the most completely oversimplified, but mm-hmm. you know, at its core, right? Like did mm-hmm. you um, get the best price you could you could mm-hmm. have? Um, but I think it's probably easier to think about, um, you know, back in the day, if you had, you know, brokers on the floor buying and selling, you mm-hmm. probably really care who your broker is, right? Mm-hmm. Because you think, you know, the guy who, you know, makes a better deal is going to get you a better price, is going to mm-hmm. help you, you know, buy and sell a lot better. But when you think of computers, you you don't <laughs> think about that. But that it's still absolutely true, mm-hmm. um, and having a better trade execution system makes a massive difference mm-hmm. um, and there are folks you know paying you know massive spreads today um, they're a lot better than they you know were a year ago but still it could be a lot better
0: and just so we make sure everyone understands a spread is you're buying the Bitcoin for $5,100, but actually you should be buying it for $5,090. This is a $10 spread.
1: In right. There. So someone buys it for, you know, $100 and then they're going to sell it to you for $120. They, they had a $20 spread yep. there.
0: And, and so in that, um, that spread in crypto is going mm-hmm. to the exchanges or is that going to... People well, on the sell side or the buy side.
1: So it depends, right? Yep. Um, exchanges don't really have spread; um, mm-hmm. they charge a commission yep. um, because they're supposed to be matching buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. When there is a spread, it's when you're dealing with a buyer or seller directly. Um, mm-hmm. So if you're going to an OTC desk, or if mm-hmm. someone's trying to, you know, sell or buy you uh, help you buy Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they charge the spread because they're marking up, you know, I bought this for a certain price, I'm gonna mm. mark that up and sell it to you, and that markup is the spread.
0: Well, this sp- and so, y- yes, to a degree, but I guess some of these platforms that are now coming out, the eToro's, the Robinhood's, etc. Uh, we can debate whether they're quote unquote yeah. exchanges. so they're a
1: broker, so they're allowed to charge a yeah. charger spread, and yep. then maybe even a commission on top, yep. right? Exchanges are a different category. Yep. They're supposed to be matching buyer and seller, um,
0: with no spread, just a commission. Yeah,
1: because they're supposed to be, you know, um, um, you know, they're, they're not supposed to be taking a spread in between, you know, yep. they, they might charge a commission on top um, for the service of matching and buying and selling, but they're supposed to be, you know, the fair, you know, adjudicator between all the different participants. And so it wouldn't, you know, it's not fair to, you know, charge a spread there.
0: Got it. And so when you guys say, hey, we're going to start a company to solve this problem, what was kind of the core idea in terms of how do you actually solve the trade execution problem?
1: So at the time, you know, the space was really fragmented. Um, and so if, you you were trying to buy and sell, say, a million dollars of Bitcoin. Um, you had a couple options, right? Um, you could go to an OTC desk and then, you know, pay pay up a little bit um, because they did all the operational work for mm-hmm. you, and and you know that was one option. But or two, you could you know do this all yourself, right? But what does that mean? You have to sign up for ten different exchange accounts, and then you have to split up your balance sheet between each of these ten accounts, and then. And then you're like, OK, let me you know, sign in to, you know, you have to have some screen that shows you where the good trades are at each time. And then um, you have to organize all your trades and then reconcile between all the different exchanges. And then you have to settle across each of mm-hmm. the exchanges. And then to get your Bitcoin back, you have to sign into each of those 10 accounts. It's And it's just a complete nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so. Um, just the
0: description doesn't sound fun. <laughs>
1: right. Uh, exactly. And you would have to do all that to. um to trade across all those exchanges. So Mm -hmm. what Tagomi does is um, make that all go away. Um, Mm -hmm. There's one interface to trade across all the different exchanges um, to make sure that you're getting the best execution. You can think of it as best price um, when you're buying and selling
0: Bitcoin. And so for a customer from a psychological standpoint, I come to Tagomi because I want to buy X Bitcoin, for example, Mm -hmm. and I know that I'm going to get the best price for those Bitcoin. That's available currently. Right? Exactly. And Tegomi's gonna have a kind of magical way of doing that. I don't even need to understand how they're doing yeah, it. Yeah,
1: one analogy I use um is you know, each of these retail exchanges is like Delta or, you know, American Airlines and we're Expedia or mm-hmm. Kayak. And so mm-hmm. we sit on top of all these exchanges um, and um, you know we have a much better view of what the true market price actually
0: is. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that's the psychological understanding of a user is like you've promised them best price so they come and they use the product. Let's talk about um, what's going on behind the scenes, right? Mm-hmm. So what are you guys actually doing when you sit kind of on top of all those different exchanges? Uh, do you ping the different exchanges through an API, get prices and then execute on only one of them? Do you actually take my purchase of a million dollars and break it across exchanges? Yes. Yeah. Like, so like walk me through how that works. Your
1: million dollars is going to be split up into really tiny trades of maybe a couple cents each mm-hmm. um, so that you're not picked off by by somebody. Right. And then that gets smart routed to each of the different destinations. Um, and then every time we see a good price, we um, we buy or sell for you, um, and then um, we kind of gather that all back up for you yep. um, and, and tell you what your, the price was. And then at the end, you'll get actually a report that says, um, you know, we bought, you know, we bought three dollars at Coinbase, we bought like six dollars at Kraken, and like you know, eight dollars at um, Bitstamp, and you can sh- see exactly how and when we executed um, that trade for you. And, and
0: how does the system decide? Three dollars at Coinbase versus six dollars at Kraken versus price, whatever.
1: Right yep. um, at, the, at the most simple level, um, it you know depends on what your inputs are. You know what your parameters are. What you're asking us. Um, you tell us a little bit about your preferences, or you could right if you're much more advanced. But at the most simplest um form of it um you know you're asking for the best price and so we'll get you the best price based on what we see on each exchange
0: got it and uh i've been fortunate i've seen the interface it's pretty slick and when you're talking about the preferences you're saying things like uh Time is really important to me right now, so therefore I'm willing to be a little less stingy on price, right? Get exactly. me, get me in the market. Exactly. Versus, hey, price is the most important thing, but I don't need to own my million dollars worth of Bitcoin today. I can do it over the next 48 hours, right? Exactly. So get me the best price over 48 mm-hmm. hours, right? Um, when you see people coming on board. Today, most of these are institutional folks. They're retail. Where, where do you see most of the interest uh, for the product?
1: Um, it's it's a mix, um, but it's usually someone trading in size, right? So it's less about who they are, whether they're a high net worth individual um, or in you know hedge fund. It's more about um, how much they're trading. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, you know, I there's a lot of people who who want to sign up. You know, we we haven't accepted them yet just because we're focused on the. Um, Client who's trading in size, but folks who only want to trade like 10k or 25k that say, you know I want to use to give me just because it's a better experience, you know mm-hmm. And so at some point we'll let those folks on the set platform as well um, But it's really folks who are trading in size who would experience a lot of liquidity cost um, If they were trading on any other platform or on a single platform mm-hmm. um, and so it's um it's you know, usually the hedge fund, the RIA, you know, um, lots of, you know, high-worth individuals too, who, you know, buying a million, 10 million, uh, sometimes even more, or, you know, or sometimes, you know, they're just buying, you know, 10K as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Got it. Uh, and so how does the infrastructure that you guys have built compared to the traditional kind of trade execution, right? Uh, obviously, um, the team's got some experience doing this at some of the, you know, the best places in the world. Are you able to replicate, you know, kind of one-to-one what, the traditional world has with in the crypto world. Are there some challenges still with the infrastructure and the technology? Like wh- where would you put us at?
1: I think it's mostly similar um, okay. with with some sort of nuances. Um, you know, Bitcoin trades very differently than than you know typical equity markets. Um, but also just the exchanges and infrastructure in this space is generally um, a lot less mature, and so it requires a lot more. There's a lot more bandages on the infrastructure, right? Uh, you need to be uh, a lot more careful about when um, an exchange adapter goes down, uh, making sure you reroute trades um, to somewhere else. Um, um, you know, there's a lot more care uh, around um, around that. So, but in general, you know, it's it's the same high-level ideas.
0: Got it. And, and really, what you guys are ultimately doing, in kind of a generalized way, is you're using technology and automation mm-hmm. to be smarter than humans, right? To, to some that, degree, yeah. right? And, and and not in like the negative connotation, but the idea that. It, Me as a single individual, if I wanted to purchase a million dollars worth of Bitcoin, I could go get a bunch of computer screens or or different tabs, you know, and and I could do a lot of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It'd be super inefficient. I would definitely make mistakes, right, or or not get best price. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would be hard to make a bunch of manual three, six, five, you know, eight dollar purchases up to a million dollars. And then also I wouldn't get all the reporting. Yeah. Right, so I could do it. It's just not ideal. Mm-hmm. What you guys then do is you use technology to automate that. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Before we started recording, we were talking about like this may be a theme across a lot of different industries where automation technologists have a significant advantage. Yeah. Um. And it's going to have a material impact on society. Mm-hmm. Right. So t- tell me a little bit more, kind of uh, how you've thought about that, and I think you've got some just unique ideas there.
1: Yeah. Sort of switching gears a little bit. Um. You know, before before we started recording, we were talking about um automation in the world generally. And um, I think it's just gonna keep, you know, growing exponentially, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're gonna see um, more things being automated away, more jobs being automated away. And um, at the end state, I think there'll be a new aristocracy um, where either you understand um, this new technological revolution um, and you own some technological asset that um, siphons you up into this new aristocracy um, or your job is sort of automated way and you become part of sort of the um, lower class um, and i think there's going to be i think it'll take some time to get there um but that's sort of the end state as i see it
0: yep and because really what you're talking about you're talking about this great divide right mm-hmm. where the technologists have a significant advantage in society right in right. a whole, whole bunch of different ways uh Not
1: like, er- you know the industri- industrial revolution
0: Absolutely. People who understand that, hey, there's going to be wealth creation, there's going to be opportunity, all this stuff, the technology or the innovation is going to drive this. If you are associated with that, you participate or you create that, you benefit. Right. If you don't, you kind of get left behind a little bit. Exactly. Um, Let's talk about the people who do not have those skills today, uh, do you think it's more of, let's try to help those people get skills, right? So let's teach them how to code, let's teach them uh, different things around technology or data science or, or um, you know how to participate? Yeah. Or do you think it is, we may not be able to get everyone educated enough to actually participate.
1: I think it depends who you are, right? So with young people today, we should absolutely put more resources into uh, making sure they're learning the right things. Um, And certainly some topics are much more important than others, especially computer science, um, things like that. But, you know, if you're, you know, like 50 or 60, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot of people thinking that we could re-educate this sort of class of people who have, um, you know, been doing their jobs, um, you know, for 40, 50 years, um, that's very hard. Um, And I think... um, you know, we have to help them in other ways. Um, I think that's, you know, very, very difficult. Um, and, and then they may not
0: be affected, right? Like in the sense of, let's say that the, I don't, I don't know what life expectancy today is, but probably like around late 70s, right? Let's call it uh, kind of 75 to 80. If you're 60, that means that pretty much based on the average life expectancy in the next 20 years, this would have to happen for it to have an impact on your life. Yeah. We may see elements of it. We may see the beginnings of it. But the odds that 20 years from now, there's yeah. this massive divide where if you don't understand this technology, you know, you're screwed. Eh, that- so
1: I actually think it'll get there a lot faster. Okay. Um, faster I, don't, than 20 I years. don't think the aristocracy will be apparent until a much later stage. Okay. But you will feel the effects of this, you know, like, uh, rev, you know, autom- automation, automation much much earlier right like we're already experiencing it now right i think that's why there's well that's why there's so much populism right like before this we were Mm -hmm. talking about sort of trump and aoc and um you know uh we were talking a little bit about andrew yang um you know i i think a lot of these are sort of symptoms of this um of what's already currently happening Mm -hmm. right um and you know there's the opioid crisis um all are sort of symptoms uh, of of um automation which you know, it's already underway. Um, So I don't think it's, you know, 20 years away. I I think what I, yeah.
0: Well, the the great divide from an economic inequality standpoint probably is, I think you're saying it's delayed even though the automation hits faster than 20 years, right? 20 years or or whatever the number is, is when it becomes so apparent that you can't ignore it. Exactly. I
1: think you'll start experiencing the inequality much sooner than that. And people will have a hard time finding jobs, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, that will be a, a lot sooner, but Seeing like, seeing the uh, you know the aristocracy part, you know mm-hmm. I think that's you know much later, maybe 20, 30 years.
0: Yeah, and, and the part that's really interesting to me. So uh, when I pitch crypto and Bitcoin et cetera to all these institutional investors, I talk about automation right and I basically yeah. say, look, you need digitally native assets, right? For the digital world, you need digitally native assets. The old technologies of paper or electronic Q-SIPS are incompatible with the machines and algorithms of today. So we yeah. need just digital native assets. It's a computer file double spend problem so we need digitally native accounting which is triple entry accounting and then we need digitally native contracts that govern all of these transactions right so it's just assets accounting and contracts for the digital world they really get that right like like to them it is inevitable that automation is coming right Mm -hmm. so you get a very wide range, everything from, you know, analysts who are right out of school all the way up to, you know, 60, 70 year old CIOs and board members all understand this stuff's coming. Yeah. So I don't think it's like a, a huge surprise to people. I think timeline is a big question, right? Hey, is this two years away, five years away, 20 years away? And then the other piece is who gets automated away first? So I've had really mm-hmm. interesting discussions about, I think most people are like, oh, we're just going to use robotics and automation and like the factory workers gone, yeah. right? we see some of that right you know if you look at like a tesla factory for example there's definitely robotics and automation that's going on there that have replaced workers but there's a very strong argument that it's actually white collar workers right things like uh, like bankers and stuff that look look at Wall Street trading floor. I totally
1: agree. I totally <laughs> right? agree.
0: It, it's not just blue-collar workers or white-collar workers. It, it's actually across the spectrum we're going to see this have a, a pretty material impact.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And, and do you feel like um, when it comes to, let's say, government and governance, right? So not mm-hmm. just the U.S. government, but just governance in general, I think that you're like me in that we're not ready for this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's a lot of stuff that's going to happen that we just have no clue on how to uh react to, how to govern over. Um, and it feels like that all starts with our politicians, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew Yang <laughs> is uh, has been blowing up in the crypto community. And, and before we're talking about how uh, he just has a very unique view of the world. A mm-hmm. lot of it comes from this technology-driven perspective. Right. Tell me more, I think, from your perspective, like, forget him as a specific candidate, but just mm-hmm. this idea of a technology-first government official, right? Kind of what the pros and cons you see there are. Like, why do you think that is attractive today versus um, kind of the, we'll call it like the politician of yesteryear?
1: So, um, we take a step back a little bit. So when I talk to a lot of um, you know, people in my network are you know usually in the top echelon of society a little bit, right? So they always say, okay, well, if you're gonna tax, you know, Amazon and all these technology companies, um, why wouldn't you use it to you know feel even more you know technological development? Like why give it to you know the poor? Like and this sounds horrible, but you know if they you know can't really help themselves, like you know it's a really you know dire you know pessimistic yeah yeah. But also you know I think the reason you know you should do it is because it's you know also ensures that you don't have a revolution right like if you're a very rich person like what don't you want to happen like a revolution right you don't Mm -hmm. want to get murdered by people Mm -hmm. um and that's why i think universal basic income should be interesting to you you know even if you're in the sort of very top echelon class and Mm -hmm. i think um it's easy to pitch it to someone who's like experiencing um you know they find it hard to find a job, right? Like they relate to it immediately. But it's really hard to pitch someone who, you know, um, works in the valley or, you know, has, you know, a lot of money or, you know, who who doesn't really experience, um, you know, what I think a lot of people in the middle of the country are experiencing. So
0: Um, let's talk about UBI for a second, right? So universal basic income is this idea that every single person is entitled to the right to have a wage, right? That is either they earn or is given to them by a government, right? There's some kind of support that's provided. Uh, I think that it's becoming a hot topic because Andrew Yang is saying he's going to give away money, right? Right. He's going to give $1,000 every month to American citizens Mm -hmm. uh, as part of this UBI program. Mm -hmm. Uh, Highly controversial UBI in general. Yeah. I think what you're saying is if people revolt because they're hungry they can't provide for their families etc if you basically take away the I, the fact that they can't do that right you provide that ability to them it is much less likely that there is any sort of revolt or revolution right right do you feel like there's other ways to provide that economic benefit without it being a subsidy from the government though and, and i'll give you an example so mm-hmm. i've had a lot of conversations with friends around uh this idea like you get paid for your output, right? So whether it's your ideas, yeah. your effort, your time, whatever, you are spending something to mm-hmm. receive financial payment back, right, in in society. And one of the things that we've never put a ton of value on, but we yeah. probably should have, is our data, right? And so there's this whole argument that all of the data you create, whether it's how many steps you take, your heartbeat, what you click on on the internet, what sites you go to, you know, what books you read, whatever it is, that data, if there was some way for you to retain control of it and permission people in and out of it and get paid for their use of it, Mm -hmm. could you actually create what feels like a UBI situation, right? Because you're not actually doing anything different than you're doing today, but you're getting paid in exchange for that data than just, hey, you're getting a check because you're an American citizen, right? And so to me, that feels kind of like UBI, but it's also not necessarily coming from the government. It's not a subsidy, right? There's some value attached to it as yeah. well.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I also just think, in general, there's um, a lot of things that are valuable to us as humans and human beings that are not valued in a sort of capitalistic world. Um, and if we can shift that a little bit, you know, if you take care of um, you know your parents or if you take care of you know people inside society things that you know society really benefit from um, but you couldn't get paid for it um, if we sort of make that a little bit more value um, valuable so that you could, could actually get paid for it you know that's very interesting and this sounds like you know um,
0: it's almost like gamification or like like it's a lot of like the crypto economics right, right. or yeah, kind yeah. of incentivization right. of uh, if you could somehow gamify doing good things that mm-hmm there's a net benefit to society or to other individuals. You're compensated in exchange for that. And yeah, it's pretty interesting. I
1: I will say that the reason why I like UBI so much is because of the simplicity.
0: Okay. Explain that.
1: It's, it's very simple, you know. You give away money. Uh, there are no rules. Everybody gets it. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to figure out if they make too much money. You don't have to figure out like who they are. You know, there's no rules around it, right? Mm-hmm. With welfare, there's you know a lot of there's lots of rules, right? Like mm-hmm. there's you know a case manager. Like it's really expensive. Um, and UBI is just very simple. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's sort of a really important feature that is. Really hard to find, and um, sort of other ideas mm-hmm. that people have really talked about. For example, the selling data thing—you know—it takes a lot of infrastructure to do that. Um, For sure. And so, in theory, it's you know a great idea, um, but in terms of practical ideas, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, I think something that's simple is quite valuable. Do
0: you? F- do you fear that, because I think the knock against UBI, right, is, oh, mm-hmm. we're going to disincentivize people from wanting to work. We're going to yeah. we're going to change the way, we're, we're going to go from the capitalistic society to a more socialist type society, right? Um, do you feel like that has validity? Do you think that maybe it's overstated? Like, how, like how do you view that as part of it? Because I agree that yeah. the UBI model is super simple you breathe you get money every month right (laughs) exactly like very simple to understand are there those negative effects that people accuse it of having
1: so i think it's the opposite i think so if we think about the welfare system right um you you have to make sure people don't earn if you make too much money you won't get the welfare right and so you're actually incentivized to stay under a certain income bar to to make sure you keep getting your welfare right so Mm -hmm. it's actually actually disincentivizes you to keep working
0: um and so in this in this case i guess really what ends up happening because here, here is something that's really interesting so my girlfriend's from bulgaria yeah. and um you know i've been there uh with her and we recently watched this uh this documentary and people were talking about socialism in the documentary like i missed the years of socialism and it's not because they're looking at it from a macro view yeah they're looking at it on a very micro level of my life was better because there was more wealth right from me as an individual in this country's view Mm -hmm. socialism brought me more wealth and so that is a better system and it's very interesting how the views change macro and micro
1: yeah so to be super clear like ubi is like not socialism right socialism is is when you centralize the means of production and You know, it'll be great for a little while, right? But then, Mm -hmm. at some point, you run out of other people's money. You know, the famous phrase, right? Um, And so, we know that doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. But UBI is actually very capitalistic. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, um, you... Create more value, you get more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's also very libertarian. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you do whatever you want with your money. Um, so it's actually completely different than I think
0: the- I'm not saying that UBI is sociali- yeah. socialism. What I'm saying is socialism is something that if you look at it from a macro view versus a micro view, right, people have very different opinions. Mm-hmm. And I think that most people, especially in the Western world where you know we believe in a capitalistic society, would look at socialism and say like, oh, that doesn't work, right? I mean, literally yeah. we see fear mongering with socialism and all this stuff. Um, but then you go and you talk to the people on the ground, and they love it, right? Because because the way that it had an impact on their life. If you then switch to UBI or, or any other one of these um, different types of, I, I think uh, macro. So, I would argue updates. against that.
1: I probably think like, in a specific period of time, mm-hmm. at the micro level, probably people really liked it. Mm-hmm. But then if you change that timeline. Um, to sort of the end period of that, you know, socialism, mm-hmm. uh, period of socialism. Probably people, you know, might have changed their mind about it but
0: by that oh, time. Right? Oh, okay, interesting. You're saying that, yes, there was a period of time where they enjoyed it, where they're benefiting from it. Right. But when it comes to an end, right, because right. Uh, cause it's unsustainable, then they realize, oh, wait.
1: This was really bad. This right? was bad yeah. over In the, the long short point. term, you know, that's nice. You know, I'm getting so much extra, I mean. right? But, um, it, in the long term, it doesn't really
0: work. Absolutely, I, I think that's a fair uh, way to look at it. Um, let, let's talk about some more of uh, Yang's, uh, we'll, we'll call it his agenda, just because, and, and again, it's less about him specifically, and it's more just about, I think, uh, his technology first focus, right? Mm-hmm. So things like automation, uh, we were talking that he's gonna try to use holograms to yeah. do uh, campaigning, so yeah. he could literally be in multiple places at one time. Yeah. Why have other people not done this stuff yet? Is it just literally he's, creative thinker and he understands technology do you think there's like incentives within government structure and politics that like disincentivizes people from doing this stuff
1: i think people just probably think it's weird really um some people do um probably right um i don't know
0: It, it but it, maybe but like i feel like you myself a bunch of people in the technology world we We're actually think doctors it's right
1: like we think it's smart. really cool we think it's really smart um <laughs> i don't know we'll see
0: what happens like because i guess in sci-fi movies there's always like the leader who like patches in on television right and it's like Mm -hmm. overlooking a big group of people and is like you know they're an arena and they're basically like dictating to them which is the negative side of that Mm -hmm. um but but to me it's like when i saw the hologram thing i was like that's one of the smartest things i've seen a presidential candidate talk about doing yeah it's just talk to more people. Yeah, exactly. um, I got it. Uh, all right, so let's talk about Bitcoin in a global macro view in the sense of, we're talking a lot about how governance works, humans governing other humans, right? Uh, part of that is they also govern money uh, mm-hmm. as it stands today. Bitcoin provides an alternative, right? There's a algorithm and that algorithm and that computer code governs the monetary policy, it governs the uh, monetary schedule all the stuff. What do we need to see happen for the mass consumer to start to open their eyes and, and kind of shift more towards a more automated money yeah. system or a monetary system compared to that human system?
1: I think actually um, growing distrust in centralized governments. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, it's better trading technology and infrastructure or, you know, it's just more of an education process or I think it's just growing distrust in the government or, or some other centralized, you know, institution. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so it's just the passage of time those institutions will continue to... When the
1: use case becomes so much more clear to you because mm-hmm. you've sort of experienced, you know, a really negative event. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and, and would you argue that's what we're seeing in like the Venezuela's Irans of the world where, uh, it's become much clearer. Maybe it's not completely clear to 100% of the population, but it's become much clearer that fiat currency with hyperinflation is bad and there's this other alternative?
1: Um, Maybe. Like, I'm... I just feel like, you know, it... um, That's sort of more like a, you know, two-hour-long conversation. (laughs) (laughs) There there are a lot of nuances there, Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I think... Um, that could be one example. Yeah.
0: Got it. Okay. Uh, what's the one thing in crypto that people are not talking about that you think they should be?
1: So I, I actually think you know, uh, Bitcoin as a payment system is a, as a red herring. And um, actually, if I were Coinbase, actually, um, I would. You have twenty five million accounts, right? They're all mm-hmm. connected to their banks. I would actually, you know, um, compete with Venmo, make it really easy to. Um, Pay each other in between those accounts and uh, compete with a centralized system, which you know is, is a little bit you know not you know not what they set out to do. They talked a lot about decentralized finance, but I I actually think you know you know that would be. Pretty interesting
0: and so your argument is if you have you already have the network right in terms of you have users those users today are only interacting with you as the centralized entity right there's no network
1: there right they're just coming to it's like a store they come buy their bitcoin and then they leave right there's Mm -hmm. no network um Mm -hmm. but what is the network it could be a massive payment system and Mm -hmm. compete with you know paypal and venmo And um, you know, massive businesses, um, Mm -hmm. or just become a bank, right? Like, um, does
0: Coinbase not allow you to withdraw money from your account into another Coinbase account? Like, I guess that would be like the hack, right? Like, it's it's super difficult to do in terms of it's not a good user experience. Like, it has
1: to be more like if I want to go send, you know. If I want to send money to you right now, like, what do I do? I like go Venmo you, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But they should make it as easy to do that on Coinbase.
0: Um, oh yeah. Oh, the user experience would have to be drastically better, drastically right? But different. I don't even know if they have the actual functionality. Like, could you withdraw between accounts? I don't even know if that exists. But the user interface, I think, is uh, it would be essential to right. improve it. A- and also, it's also uh, to me one thing that I think crypto loses a little bit once yeah. you get into like the hardcore blockchain world is users do what you tell them to do, right? And what I mean by that is, both by the way you present a product, mm-hmm. right? So like, Togomi, yeah. you coming for best price. Yeah. What do I think when I think of Togomi? Best price, right? right. I'm coming for best price, mm-hmm. right? That is the brand promise. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, the way that the interface is set up, the user experience, right? All of these different things guide me to do things. Now mm-hmm. I still have choice, right? In mm-hmm. the sense of, I can hit cancel, or I can go yep. back, or I can go to set, you know, all this stuff. but you're definitely helping me do what you think I should be doing, right? Mm-hmm. I think that that gets lost a lot, right, in, in crypto and blockchain because it just feels like everyone's so focused on the technology, right? Yeah. And, and it's the the design, the user experience, that brand promise, like all of these things that are like more kind of soft skills, right? right. Um, but that's what makes a lot of these products that we use every day, like a Venmo, so valuable. Right. Right. And it just it just feels like they're not there in crypto yet. Right. right? Maybe it just takes time. I don't right. know. Yeah,
1: no, totally. It feels like, you know, if you want to use email, but you have to understand email protocol. Like, you know, <laughs> no one really understands that. Right. But they use email all day. Right. Like, we're not there yet with um, Bitcoin, but also, you know, other cryptocurrencies. Um, and we have to get there.
0: Do you think that's like a five less year type journey or do you think that's actually longer
1: I think five last year. I've, I would
0: vote for that. You 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 uh, you have a lot more confidence, I think, in the automation and uh, and and the user experience and all this stuff improving than I think most people do. But it's probably closer than we think. I think
1: it's it's an exponential curve, right? So mm-hmm. it's gonna it accelerate. Accelerate, right? Yeah. So you feel a little bit like you know, but you know, in two years, in three years, it's it's gonna feel a lot more extreme.
0: Got it. Um, all right. Before I wrap up, rapid fire questions. Uh, most important company in crypto other than Tagomi?
1: Uh, Tagomi, obviously. You <laughs>
0: cannot let me say that. <laughs> what What is the second most important company?
1: Um, I don't think it's a company. I okay. think it's, you know, uh, people working on protocols or... Um, or you you know, can say I, Bitcoin. Yeah. Like, I was actually just about to say Bitcoin. Oh. I was going to say, like, you know, if you think about the most... Um, important uh networks in, in crypto mm-hmm. they're not companies uh they're you know it's like bitcoin it's like a protocol you know, i completely it's not, agree yeah exactly um so i wouldn't say a company i would say something.
0: if you could improve or change one regulation what would it be
1: Ew, is it bitcoin regulation
0: no it could be anything okay. a- a- any, anything that uh touches um, do, kind of crypto you know, and blockchain UBI. okay all right you do ubi yeah. all right that's fair um what is your most controversial thought in crypto like what do you believe that you think? almost everybody else would disagree with you on.
1: I think, you know, payments is a red herring um, and that, you know, I think Coinbase should become, go compete with Venmo.
0: Do you think they could win?
1: Well, if they really have 25 million accounts, like, I don't have a, you know, you know, we have to look. They don't they don't have a lot of data, but if they yeah. really have 25 million, like what the highest ca- CAC there is really getting people to connect with their bank accounts, right? That's really yep. expensive. For sure. It's really hard to get people to connect to their bank accounts. And mm-hmm. they've done that with 25 million accounts. Um, mm-hmm. That's really valuable, right? Um,
0: Do you think that the...
1: I think the average person is not gonna be like, oh, there's um, like this new coin, let me buy that. You know, mm-hmm. they it's just too long of an education process. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is something they do every day, you know, payments?
0: Do you think that the incumbent technology companies like the Twitters, the Facebooks, and maybe even the Googles who have these built-in user bases, they are networks, right, they're already connected, not f- through financial services, but information, profiles, whatever, if they entered the fray, do you think they're actually the ones who have the best chance of winning? Or well, like
1: Facebook, you know, Google—they don't have my bank account, mm-hmm. right? So it's just—you think such, that's
0: such a hard thing to get somebody to do?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, take some time. It mm-hmm. would just be such a tiny pivot for mm-hmm. for Coinbase, mm-hmm. and also, you know, Facebook has a trust issue. Like, no one's going to connect, you know, their bank account to
0: Facebook. Um, See, <laughs> all right. So I, I disagree with you on this. I agree with you on a lot of things, but I disagree with you on this. My guess is that in North America, people don't trust Facebook, right, to to some degree. Outside of North America, I actually think that Facebook may be one of the most trusted companies.
1: So I actually, you know, that sounds like, you know that sounds about right but at the same time they've had that payments thing Mm -hmm. for years right like Uh, like like,
0: pay and messenger
1: pay and messenger right like no and you can connect your bank account to Mm -hmm. that right so no one's done that right like Mm -hmm. there has to be some like reason for you to to get over that hump right um
0: do we think that Oh, man, like I'm going to go find this out.
1: activation cost. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, well, and,
0: do we think that Facebook Messenger has more than 25 million people's bank accounts attached to it or I, less? I think less. Oh, I think more. I don't, I don't know what the answer is. I have no idea. I'm going go to go find out. All right, we'll, we'll find out. But that's actually a really good data point, right? Is Because you're right. They have had it for a long time. It's on a global basis. How many people have done it? If it's a really small number they probably will struggle to do it. If it's actually a bigger number, and and it's less about uh, it being a big number because they have hundreds of millions of people doing it, it's probably just there's certain countries where they have deep penetration, and that's how everyone, like the network in that country uses it. Uh, But I think that'd be a really interesting data point to know. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the most important book you've ever read? Uh, I couldn't
1: pick one. Um, Maybe Bitcoin white paper. That's so cliche though.
0: Um... No one's ever said that.
1: Really? Yeah. I'll send Pickle my
0: White Paper. All right. Uh, or The Prince. Is that what you, the book you said earlier? The
1: Little Prince. The Little Prince. That's a, also a very, very famous book. I've never read it. Really?
0: Never heard of it. Nope. Uh, aliens. Real, not real. Believe, don't believe? Um. Probably not. You don't believe in aliens. No. All right, explain. There's only two other people I think that have ever come on I and think not believe. We
1: would have found them by now. Really? No.
0: Space is so big in terms of uh, we're just one universe. Like, there's so many different universes. The, like, just mathematically, the probability that we can even be aware of all of the places that aliens could be is so low, that like, I'm at like 99% likely they are out there and the odds that we are the only intelligent life form on Mm -hmm. the only planet where that could happen I don't know.
1: Maybe. Do you ask all your... Every single one. Really? Okay.
0: Two. I think only two people have not believed. Uh, and then Josh Brown. Shout out Josh Brown because Josh Brown literally uh, hit us with uh, ghosts are more likely to be real than aliens. <laughs> <laughs> um, we end each one. You can ask me one question.
1: Hmm. Um, what's your most controversial thought?
0: I think that... Bitcoin has a massively higher probability of becoming a global reserve currency than people give it credit for today.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I would put the odds at...
1: Is that controversial?
0: Yes, because I think that most people look at it, like even like hardcore crypto people, Yeah. if you were like, what are the odds right now that Bitcoin could become? It's like less than 20%, almost always. Like I, I've asked a bunch of people, right? And so it's like, the people who want to be nice mm-hmm. and they don't want to sound controversial will say, like, single digits. Mm-hmm. They probably believe more like 10 15%. And then the people who are, like, comfortable being a little bit more controversial will, yeah. will go as high as, like, 20%. Yeah, I think we're at least over 50% Got it. Uh, and in terms of probability.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And what we've seen is when Bitcoin goes up head-to-head when a fiat currency is failing – it's like not even right? It's just you just see the movement of funds. Now, there could be other reasons why that happens, all the stuff. Uh, but the one thing I always go back to is when fiat currencies fail,
1: mm-hmm.
0: almost always, is because humans lost discipline, mm-hmm. right? So they hyperinflated their own currency. They, they just made bad decisions. Mm-hmm. An algorithm doesn't do that, right. right? Now, the design could be incorrect, right? But the design is going to be executed based on what the code tells it to do, right? And so, this idea that like, when we started, we were talking about automation a lot, right? One of the things that I talked to institutional investors about is, look, humans actually trust the algorithms more than they trust humans already, right? right? And now, you you know, you go to a city and you get lost, you pull up Google Maps, you don't ask them on the street corner, right. you don't really ask your friends for music anymore, you listen to Spotify and Apple Music and they do these recommendations, right? Uh, if you have a question, you ask Google and Siri, you don't ask your friend, it's so like, We trust these algorithms so many other parts of our life, eventually we're going to trust an algorithm with money, right? But when it comes to finances, to your point, like to get somebody to connect a bank account, really tough, right? Like the trust level has to be so much higher for a financial service with an algorithm versus something that's not financial. So
1: I think for something, for Bitcoin to become um, like money, we actually have to evolve to a system that has... The protocol has, has to have some levers in, in in it that can smooth out business cycles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is some benefit to having a centralized system, right? Like you can smooth out business cycles, and that's really valuable. Um, it prevents recessions, make sure you know people aren't you know suffering too much. Um, and you can't do that with Bitcoin, right? Which is why I really think Bitcoin is just a store of value. I think we'll need a different protocol if we're going to do money.
0: Really? You think that... Okay, hold on. We, we can't end yet. You think that Bitcoin is a store of value, but you think that there has to be another digital currency that it could be... has to be more
1: sophisticated than Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin's pretty simple. You know, people try to make it way too complicated. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's much, much better version, version of gold. It's a much better store of value. And mm-hmm. that's kind of it. You know, I think, you know, we'll have to... Um, see a more sophisticated protocol with some different levers in it to um,
0: to, any learn idea, to become good money. Any idea what those would be?
1: Um, I haven't seen anything yet. What the levers are? Or what? Yeah, yeah, like
0: what the levers oh, like, would be.
1: You know, to you know. You know inflate and deflate like same thing thing that like the central bank has you know something like that um, and how
0: do you envision so let's say that that would be true right how do you envision like the government who gets to pull the levers basically that's
1: what's so hard right
0: <laughs> like that's why <laughs> nobody um, trusts anybody <laughs>
1: right exactly and which is also the brilliance of bitcoin right mm-hmm. it's a brilliance of bitcoin but i think that's also why it's so hard for it to become like Money for a daily use case, um, mm-hmm. because you know there are some benefits to having a centralized system that you don't have in Bitcoin quite yet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and those benefits do not matter for a store of value. That's why Bitcoin's so good for that. Um, but it, it does matter for some of these other applications.
0: Yeah, I, I just saw, um, uh, I recorded another episode recently and, and I talked about uh, in the last two recessions, they've cut interest rates by at least 500 basis points. Mm-hmm. And rates today are you know, 2.5% or so. And so if we had another recession, basically this op-ed was arguing that tool is no longer in the tool like we can't cut 500 basis points if you only yeah. have two and a half unless you are willing to go to negative right yeah and so uh there's this element of like we are in a system where there are those levers right and if the levers are there people are going to pull them for mm-hmm. good or bad um but what we're seeing is like we may not have some of the levers we've had previously and we may have new levers that we can pull right um and they were even talking about like could there be an intentional not hyperinflation, but like a a more inflationary model that would be used to try to you know recover from some sort of future recession. Uh, and I think I just fundamentally disagree that humans are smart enough to do that stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, like it coming out of 2017, 2000, or uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Like, I think a lot of people are like, "Oh, look, we just had this huge bull market. You know, it, it was great. We like reversed the recession." But I think again, if you go back to your like, we'll just widen out the timeline.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We probably just made the problem worse and kicked the can down the road, right? So like, yeah, for those ten years, it was great, right? But do we actually end up with a bigger problem when it when it all kind of finally blows up? I don't know, right? And I don't I don't think we know that yet. But uh, but but it's really interesting to think about, especially I don't think I've heard anyone argue Bitcoin could be a store of value, and then we can have another digital currency that could be centralized or decentralized, and that's money. And you basically have a two-currency system to some degree, right, in terms of gold and a a daily currency.
1: Probably. That's sort of what's intuitive to me. Um, It's hard for me to think about Bitcoin as a payment system, but maybe...
0: All right. I just I we only disagree not- on we only disagree on two things. That's fine. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to bring you back when Bitcoin is the global uh, reserve currency, and we'll talk about it. Okay, great, awesome. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. I am uh, I'm a big fan of what you guys are doing at Togomi. I think that um, you know you guys have built a, a fantastic team, and uh, and people are really excited about it. So we'll uh, we'll have to do this again in the future. Okay, awesome. Sounds good. Hey everyone, Pop here.